the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. And greetings to my friends in Israel who are listening. The war is in an intense phase of fighting as the IDF has closed to close quarters with the central points, the central areas of focus of the Hamas terrorists, and they've begun pumping in the Mediterranean Sea into the tunnel. So the reverse upside-down Maginot line is beginning to fill up with water, and I hope everything is shorted out. Pray for the hostages. Pray for the IDF. They lost another, I believe, five soldiers overnight. And the losses in the IDF in the actual campaign are at 80. And since the massacre on 10-7 are closing in on 400, so it's just catastrophic for the IDF. But they're going to close with and destroy that terrorist organization. They're doing it. They're doing it far above and beyond the laws of armed conflict. They're doing their job. You know who's doing their job? The presidents of MIT, of Penn, and especially of Harvard. Now, I'm speaking as a Harvard alum, and I love my time there from 1974 to 1978. I have nothing but good to say about those years. It was a place of vibrant intellectual diversity. My roommates from that era are a very liberal guy, a very moderate guy, and me. And we have served or been in conversation with every president since Richard Nixon. And we are all from nowhere. right? We had good families and studied hard and had good SATs. But we came from nowhere, and we've had great lives and great careers. And we all credit, in part, Harvard. We also married extraordinary women. And so we are all three blessed. But what I saw yesterday was so deeply troubling and embarrassing as the House committee summoned these three presidents to talk about anti-Semitism on their campus. So I posted on X not long ago, and I will repeat throughout today, President Gay is the president of Harvard, and she ought to be fired today. There are two groups that run Harvard, the Board of Overseers and the Harvard Corporation. They have some overlap. I have never figured it out. They're all Democrats. Uh, but people like David Rubenstein, who may or may not have already retired, are serious people. And they must know that President Gay can't stay there. They should bring back Larry Summers, ask him to do it for three years, and then methodically go through the faculty and the staff and give everyone a check and say, thank you, your services are no longer needed. We're going to change this university back to a college back to a university, back to what it was in the 70s when you could have Harvey Mansfield and Judith Sklar both teaching and Alan Keyes and Bill Crystal as teaching fellows. And the dorms were diverse and full of conversation and learning and excitement and adventure and not a left-wing thought factory full of anti-Semitic absolute goons. Goons. Here is President Gay talking with House member Elise Stefanik yesterday, cut number three. Dr. Gay, a Harvard student calling for the mass murder of African-Americans is not protected free speech at Harvard, correct? Our commitment to free speech... It's a yes or no question. Is that corrected? Is that 
okay for students to call for the mass murder of African Americans at Harvard? Is that protected free speech? Our commitment to free speech. It's a yes or no question. Let me ask you this. You are president of Harvard, so I assume you're familiar with the term intifada, correct? I've heard that term, yes. And you understand that the use of the term intifada in the context of the Israeli-Arab conflict is indeed a call for violent armed resistance against the state of Israel, including violence against civilians and the genocide of Jews. Are you aware of that? That type of hateful speech is personally abhorrent to me. And there have been multiple marches at Harvard with students chanting, quote, there is only one solution, intifada revolution, and, quote, globalize the intifada. Is that correct? I've heard that thoughtless, reckless, and hateful language on our campus, yes. So based upon your testimony, you understand that this call for intifada is to commit genocide against the Jewish people in Israel and globally, correct? I will say again, that type of hateful speech is personally abhorrent to me. Do you believe that type of hateful speech is contrary to Harvard's code of conduct, or is it allowed at Harvard? It is at odds with the values of Harvard. Can you not say here that it is against the code of conduct at Harvard? We embrace a commitment to free expression, even of views that are objectionable, offensive, hateful. It's when that speech crosses into conduct that violates our policies against bullying, harassment, Does that speech not cross that barrier? Does that speech not call for the genocide of Jews and the elimination of Israel? When you speech- testify that you understand that is the def- definition of intifada. Is that speech according to the code of conduct or not? We embrace a commitment to free expression and give a wide berth to free expression even of views that are objectionable. You and I both know that's not the case. You are aware that Harvard ranked dead last when it came to free speech. Are you not aware of that report? As I observed earlier, I reject that characterization. It's the data shows it's true. And isn't it true that Harvard previously rescinded multiple offers of admissions for applicants and accepted freshmen for sharing offensive memes, uh, racist statements, sometimes as young as 16 years old? Did Harvard not rescind those offers of admission? That long predates my time as president. But you understand that Harvard made that decision to rescind those offers of admission. I have no reason to contradict the facts as you present them. Correct, because it's a fact. You're also aware that a Winthrop House faculty dean was let go over over who he chose to legally represent, correct? That was while you were dean. That is an incorrect characterization of what transpired. What's the characterization? I'm not going to get into details about a personnel matter. Well, let me ask you this. Will admissions offers be rescinded or any disciplinary action be taken against students or applicants who say from the river to the sea or intifada advocating for the murder of Jews? As I've said, that type of hateful, reckless, offensive speech is personally abhorrent to me. Today that no action will be taken. What action will be taken? When speech crosses into conduct that violates our policies, including policies against bullying, harassment, or intimidation, we take action, and we have robust 
disciplinary processes that allow us to hold individuals accountable. What action has been taken against students who are harassing and calling for the genocide of Jews on Harvard's campus? I can assure you we have robust What actions have been taken? I'm not asking. Actions underway. I, I'm asking what actions have been taken against given, those students? Given students' rights to privacy and our obligations under FERPA, I will not say more about any specific cases other than to reiterate that processes are ongoing. Do you know what the number one hate crime in America is? I know that over the last couple of months, there has been an alarming rise of anti-Semitism, which I understand is the critical topic that we are here to discuss. That's correct. It is anti-Jewish hate crimes. And Harvard ranks the lowest when it comes to protecting Jewish students. This is why I've called for your resignation. And your testimony today, not being able to answer with moral clarity, speaks volumes. I yield back. Bravo, Elise Stefanik. Like me, a graduate of Harvard. Like me, demanding that President Gay be fired if she does not resign. One more President Gay exchange with the chairwoman of the committee, Virginia Fox. Cut number 25. So I want to ask each one of you, President Gay, do you believe that Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish nation? I agree that the state of Israel has the right to exist. Notice she did not say Jewish nation. Look, it was a disaster for every one of those presidents. But disasters don't matter unless there are consequences. Harvard is ruled by a corporation and a board of overseers. It's a joint rule. It's a very, very opaque sort of rule. But they both have authority. They ought to jointly demand that President Gay resign, and if she doesn't, fire her. And they ought to methodically go through every staff member who's been involved in this meltdown of leftist craziness and retire them. Just fire them and retire them. Give them big checks. They've got a $40 billion endowment. Just methodically go through and say, here's your million-dollar check. Go home, never come back. Clean out your office. Start over. Harvard is a cesspool of anti-Semitism and left-wing activism that does not protect students and does not punish anti-Semitic behavior. That includes assault that we all saw on TV. And she couldn't even say it. She sounded like, you know, the, the, the mob boss... Invoking the fifth, it's like the the mafia of college presidents yesterday. It was the most outrageous and embarrassing thing. And there's a Harvard alum, and there are many online saying the same thing. Step down, President Gay. You have embarrassed me. You've embarrassed every person with the degree. You've discredited the university. And everyone around you is complicit in this silence. Every one of you should be fired. To the overseers and the corporation, if you haven't got it, a spine, then you quit. And show everyone that you are sincere. In the meantime, don't give them a dollar and Department of Education cut them off. I'll be right back on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. Denny Lane died yesterday of the Moody Blues. He, um, he was replaced by Justin Haywood, who I used to sit in for in the, in the old days when I would play this song. But I'll, I'll tell you right now. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. 
Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. It's a perfect song for today. Once upon a time, Harvard and MIT and Penn and the other universities of the East Coast were great places of intellectual diversity, free expression, a great deal of student activism, a great deal of serious learning. They've all gone right to hell. And I, I misspoke in the first segment. Harvard's endowment isn't $40 billion. It's $50 billion. $50 billion. So if they're getting a 3% return, can you do the math, Steelers fan? What's a 10% return? $5 billion. What's a 1% return? $500 million. So a 3% return is $1.5 billion a year if they put the money in money market funds. And they don't. They obviously are making much more than that. They don't need a dime from the federal government, but they do need new leadership, and they need a Department of Justice Civil Rights Division investigation into what has gone on there. And President Gay should be ex-President Gay by the end of the day. But not just her. I mean, every one of them. The three mob, I mean, college presidents who were up there yesterday all took the equivalent of the academic Fifth Amendment and refused to answer any serious questions because they've got anti-Semitism all around them. And they don't know what to do with it because they're hemmed in on the left by their uh, Black Lives Matter students and their Students for Justice in Palestine and their small remnant of students who are activists this way. And they're crazy professors that they've hired over 20 years. And it's all breaking down. They brought up some students. The GOP, House GOP, brought up some students. Good for them. Here is Penn's E.L. Yacobi talking about what it's like on Penn's campus right now. Cut number four. For the past three weeks inside Houston Hall, our student center, an anti-Semitic headquarters has been erected with signs spreading Hamas propaganda. The organizers, both Penn affiliated and not, were initially asked to leave as they are trespassing on campus property. Well, three weeks later, they are still sleeping there, and countless Jewish students have been harassed, yet the anti-Semitic dormitory remains. Clearly, both a disregard for school policies and permission to disregard them by a university unwilling to do anything. Not only are tensions palpable, but there have also been materialized actions taken to intimidate and harm students. A bomb threat against Hillel. A swastika spray-painted. The Hillel and Chabad houses vandalized. A professor posting the armed wing of Hamas's logo on Facebook. A Jewish student accosted. Jews are Nazis, etched adjacent to Penn's Jewish fraternity house. Why doesn't the university hold the perpetrators of such acts accountable? Is the university fearful that they may offend those who wish to intimidate and harass their fellow students? Penn's ambivalence fuels the crisis that has shattered my academic sanctuary. Policies meant to safeguard us have become hollow promises. And let us be clear, if they fail Jewish students today, tomorrow they will fail the rest of us. Nonetheless, I refuse to go back to 1939 when Jews had to hide the religious symbols and hide who they are due to the intimidation and harassment of us. I used to think this was nonsense, fear-mongering until I was made aware that Penn recommended to students, quote, not wear clothing slash accessories related to Judaism. 
Hundreds of posters mocking the hostages featuring cows instead of humans adorned Penn's campus two weeks ago. While on my way to class, I was greeted with chalk reading 90% of pigs are gas chambered. As a student, what my despite what my university says, I do not feel safe. Let me be clear, I do not feel safe. Luckily, there are policies in place to protect students from the heinous acts I described. Unluckily, the university seems to have no interest in upholding those very policies. It's time for the soul of our university to reclaim its integrity. And it's time for me and my fellow classmates to stop worrying for our lives. Thank you. He is uh, really quite remarkable, and my hat is off to him. It takes a great deal of courage to do that. He'll be a marked man at Penn because the Nazis disguised as activists at Penn will go and find him now, and they'll harass him, and they may hurt him. That's the reality of Penn's campus. The same thing will happen. You saw the Jewish kid walking across the yard in Harvard. That was the very first overt evidence I had of what I had experienced this past summer. Many of you know, I'm 67. I went to my 45th college reunion this year. It was bat blank crazy left wing. They had purged everyone of the center right from any kind of presentation, except Arthur Brooks snuck in because they didn't know he was a right winger and a Catholic communicant. And then he snuck in. Everything else was left wing, left wing, west wing. It was an apology for the Chinese Communist Party, which is involved in genocide. It is off its rocker. But I had no idea it was anti-Semitic to this extent. So here's what we need to do. If you're a Harvard person, stop sending them money. Start sending them letters demanding mass firings and resignations of people who need to go. They're not serious academics. They're not serious administrators. They're not deans. They're not presidents. All they are are propagandists and activists. And we need to purge. And, and you can fire people who have tenure. You just have to pay them. And when your endowment is $50 billion, you can pay for a lot of golden parachutes. This ought to look like a blink in Normandy of left-wing faculty and staff getting pushed off the airplane that is Harvard and at Penn and MIT. I've got two more students to play for you. i got to play for you a couple of more of the... Uh, it was just an amazing hearing. It's all online. And the, the mafia of college presidents who are all joined in their anti-Semitic uh, apologias. They wouldn't... They would not come out and condemn. They would not detail. They hid behind... The classic, uh, the academic equivalents of HIPAA. Oh, we can't possibly tell you. They've done nothing. They've done nothing anywhere. Not one place. Not one professor has been cashiered. Not one professor. And by the way, you can fire a tenured professor. You, you just have to buy them out. Right? You don't worry that the other tenured professor, you give them a golden hand cake, uh, cup. A lot of colleges can't do that. They can't afford it. Harvard's got $50 billion. They can replace every member of the faculty and start over. They can fire every dean and associate dean and every member of the admissions offer. They can turn it upside down, empty it out, do it three times, and you wouldn't even notice a dent in their finances. Ditto Penn. Ditto MIT. Ditto the New York University. Let's listen to the students first. This is NY Junior, NYU, New York University against Steelers fans. NYU Bella Ingber talking about right now. Cut number five. Thank you all for having me and for giving me the opportunity to share with you my story. My name is Bella Ingber. I am a junior at NYU, and I'm going to try to answer the following question for you from my personal experiences. What is it like to be a Jew at NYU? Being a Jew at NYU is walking to class and passing torn and defaced posters of innocent hostages with the words occupier and murderer written across their faces. It is going to Bope's library to study 
and being interrupted by unauthorized protests where students and faculty call for a globalized intifada revolution, an incitement to violence against Jews everywhere, and a call for the annihilation of the Jewish state and my friends and family who live there. Being a Jew at NYU is being surrounded by students and faculty who support the murder and kidnapping of Jews because after all, as they say, resistance is justified when people are occupied. It is being surrounded by social justice warriors and self-proclaimed feminists whose calls for justice end abruptly when the rape victims are Jews. Being a Jew at NYU has meant being physically assaulted in NYU's library by a fellow student while I was wearing an American Israeli flag and having my attacker still roam freely throughout the campus. Being a Jew at NYU is experiencing how diversity, equity, and inclusion is not a value that NYU extends to its Jewish students. Since October 7th, the unmistakable anti-Semitism that I've experienced on campus is reminiscent of the Jew hatred I've heard about from my grandparents, Holocaust survivors, who experienced firsthand the deafening silence of their neighbors in Poland and Germany when the Nazis first rose to power. As anti-Semitic rhetoric and actions became more and more acceptable, their communities' shops were looted, their synagogues defaced, and finally, their families were taken away and perished in concentration camps. Today, in 2023, at NYU, I hear calls to gas the Jews, and I am told that Hitler was right. To the NYU administration, you are not free to selectively enforce your own rules. You are not free to refuse your Jewish students the same protections that you extend to others. NYU has adopted the International Holocaust Remembrance Association's definition of anti-Semitism, which recognizes that calls to harm Jews in the name of radical ideology, calls to eradicate Israel, to deny the Jewish people their right to self-determination in their ancestral homeland is anti-Semitism that is punishable under NYU's code of conduct. I am a proud Jew, and I am a proud Zionist. I am the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors. We are not going anywhere. Anti-Semitism and the support for terror should have no home at NYU or any other college campus. We made the promise of never again, and never again is now. Thank you. One more student, please. Penn, no, I've used Penn student. MIT student Talia Khan, please. Thank you so much, Representative Fox and Representative Stefanik, for inviting me here today. My name is Talia Khan. I am an undergraduate alumna of MIT and a current graduate student at MIT. I am the daughter of a Jewish mother and an Afghan Muslim immigrant father. I am the proud president of the MIT Israel Alliance, and I am a Jewish student currently immersed in an extremely toxic anti-Semitic atmosphere at MIT. The MIT administration, namely President Sally Kornbluth, has failed to address the crisis of rampant anti-Semitism on campus. There is a radical anti-Israel group at MIT called the CAA. In recent weeks, the CAA's anti-Semitic rhetoric has shifted the culture on campus to such an extreme of intolerance that 70% of MIT's Jewish students polled feel forced to hide their identities and perspectives. An Israeli student whose identity and personal info was sold online for a bounty has not left his dorm room in weeks out of fear due to death threats. For my part, 
I was forced to leave my study group for my doctoral exams halfway through the semester because my group members told me that the people at the Nova Music Festival deserved to die because they were partying on stolen land. After a postdoc at MIT said that Jewish Israelis want to enslave the world in a global apartheid system, he falsely claimed that Israel harvests Palestinian organs and implied that the, quote, average Israeli is a Nazi. The DEI officer of his department replied by telling us that nothing he said was hate speech and that the organ harvesting conspiracy theory was, quote, confirmed. Day after day, the MIT administration has failed to enforce its own rules on anti-Semitic actors, such as the interfaith chaplain intimidating Jewish students, DEI staff publicly declaring that Israel has no right to exist, faculty dismissing student concerns for their safety by telling them that if they are scared, they should just go back to Israel. CAA protesters blocking the hallways, storming the offices of the MIT Israel internship offices and harassing the staff and faculty there and inviting dangerous outsiders to campus to join them in yelling hateful and violent chants. This is the same climate of anti-Semitism that has led to massacres of Jews throughout the centuries. This is not just harassment. This is our lives on the line. The MIT administration has punted disciplinary processes to a faculty committee on discipline, which has thus far not received a single one of our complaints. MIT admin has even failed to staff a new task force against hate, which will duly combat anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. This atmosphere is intolerable. Jewish students do not believe that the MIT administration has done an adequate job to make students feel safe on campus. President Kornbluth, please let me go back to being a scientist. Let me go back to being a student. I don't want to have to keep advocating for Jewish student safety on campus. It's not my job. It's your job. Please do your job and act now. And if you can't, I'm asking Congress to do it for you. Thank you. Well done, Talia. Now, let me explain something to you. I'm going to put on my con law professor hat here. The Congress has something known as the spending power. Right? They have a spending power. They don't, it's not unconstitutional to exercise the spending power. So here's how Congress needs to exercise its spending power right now. There is a supplemental appropriation, a must-pass bill, that is coming through the Senate on its way to the House. It will include funding for security at the border, funding for resupply of Ukraine, funding for Israel. Three urgently needed pots of money, big pots of money. To that bill, when it arrives at the House, the Speaker of the House ought to add an amendment that under no circumstances shall any federal funds be expended by any federal agency on the following universities. And you list Harvard, MIT, Penn, Cornell, Columbia, NYU, I believe Northwestern, I believe the University of California, San Diego, any school for which you have evidence of anti-Semitism, not one dollar of federal money shall be expended in the forthcoming federal fiscal year until and unless the Congress has approved such funding following receipt of a comprehensive report acceptable to the Congress of actions taken by that university to remedy the anti-Semitism that is there on the campus. End of amendment. And you can get someone to write it up in, in legislative language. But you know what I'm getting at. Use the spending power and cut them 
off. Cut them all off, Speaker Johnson. The country will be with you. I even think Chuck Schumer and Kristen Gillibrand will be with you. You've got people running around these campuses denying that women were mercilessly raped and abused before they were murdered at the at the music festival. You've got people running around who will not admit that women are being held in the tunnels. Israeli women are being held in the tunnels that were not released by the terrorists. You've got people running around who are denying the reality of the intent to destroy the state of Israel. And you've got the country behind you. Cut them off. Now, there are some First Amendment limits on what you can demand, but you don't have to give them a dime constitutionally, not one dime, until you are satisfied that their university is actually a university deserving of the receipt of federal money. It's not a First Amendment issue. You can't single out a particular phrase, but they can come back to you and present that their universities are once again safe for students of all genders, races, creeds, colors. They can come back and make that statement and list the actions they have taken. And then you can examine that list and decide for yourself if they're up to the standard that you have in your mind. And I don't think they'd make that standard unless you saw that their presidents had been fired, all of their deans of students had been fired, many, many professors involved in any of these demonstrations fired, the deans of student life fired, just a whole list of people whose heads have rolled. The proverbial academic guillotine should be shown to you before you do anything. That's what I think. Thus, the fiat saith not further. Other than... Yeah, I got. I, I watched that thing yesterday. What a what a meltdown! What an embarrassment for those universities and the Harvard Board of Overseers, Harvard Corporation. Get out there, Mary Catherine Ham joined me. I don't think the University of Georgia has melted down, but they did get tossed out of the college football playoff, so she'll probably be angry too. Stay tuned, America. Welcome back, America. Mary Catherine Ham, co-host of Getting Hammered podcast with Vic Mattis, joins me. Good morning, Mary Catherine. I wish to begin by commiserating on Georgia being expelled from the college football Final Four. You and I both know it should have been Alabama, Georgia, Michigan, and Ohio State in the Final Four. Can we agree on that? Look, I think it's tricky because the SEC, I feel like, gets this sort of uh, perennial power birth to the top four, and I think they should. My argument is that if there's been an SET team for the past three seasons that has been super dominant and powerful, it is not Alabama. But we didn't get the W when we needed to get the W. So I have to kind of take the cookie as it crumbles here. But I do think they're in the top four powerful teams in the country. They wouldn't be one and two. It would be Michigan, Alabama, probably Georgia, then Ohio State. And the country would say, yeah, you know, that's right. Mary Catherine, let's get to the serious Hmm. stuff. Uh, My college president embarrassed herself yesterday, President Gay. It was like a mafia of college presidents taking the equivalent of the Fifth Amendment. What did you make of that hearing and then the subsequent testimonies of the students of those universities? I mean, see, this is the problem with college campuses, right, is that this ideology that they are steeped in now, this oppressed versus oppressor, which we've talked about, releases them from the obligation to think about right and wrong. So they don't do that anymore because their right and wrong is whoever claims they are oppressed and whoever is uh, they bend the knee to that person. Right. It doesn't matter what tactics that person uses. It doesn't matter who they're intimidating or what they're saying or what they're doing. Past speech to violence, vandalism, threats. Uh, they get a pass up to and including at one of these higher institutions, folks who are on student visas. They declined to punish them because they might be punished by losing their visas. That's the whole point of the system. When they are coming here to be students, they are supposed to behave by the rules of the school. 
lest they lose their visas. So it's flipped on its head. I don't think any of these people have perspective on anyone other than the oppressed groups that are like, that get the, get the ordained sort of title of oppressed. And the Jewish people do not get that title, despite being, oh, a little bit historically marginalized. So now you have a situation where they will not punish those who even do be way beyond speech, things that are very clearly past the code of conduct, very clearly expulsion worthy, assault in some cases, uh, they won't punish those people because they don't fit that paradigm. And it's going to continue to get worse for that reason. Now, there is a must-pass bill moving through the Senate. It's the Supplemental Appropriation for Israel, Ukraine, and Border Security. Mitt Romney, of all people, made it clear yesterday it's all a package or it's not a package at all. So it will get through the Senate. We'll go to the House. I want the Speaker to attach to it a complete cutoff of all federal funding to any university with a record of anti-Semitic action, unless and until a report is received detailing the actions taken to remedy that to the sufficient uh, uh, satisfaction of the Congress. What do you think, Mary Catherine? Would the country be behind Mike Johnson if he did that? Well, I think maybe the country would. Do I think Democrats in the House would help pass it? I don't know. They're very, very beholden to this wing, to this elite education, but very dumb wing of the party and morally noxious wing of the party. So I'm not sure if they would go along with that. But I do think uh, that it's worth talking about what we are giving these universities and sort of not only taking funding away, but taking away sort of our our imprimatur of, of credentialism for these places, because clearly what's coming out of there is not what used to. So let's maybe look elsewhere. I say this as a state school kid, you know, so I'm biased, but maybe look elsewhere for smart people who you're hiring for your jobs and, and take away some of their power that way as well. Well, I'm a state school kid from Michigan uh, for my law degree, but Harvard is my college and I'm embarrassed. And I do know, do you know how much Harvard endowments is just you university of Georgia, poor person. Do you know how much Harvard's endowment is? <laughs> it's like- it's like billions and billions of dollars. I don't, I don't know what the, the total five is. zero billion, fifty billion dollars. <laughs> so why do you? I mean, think that's how much our uh, our football program costs. So I yeah, well, <laughs> your NIL is going to go up a lot. But I want to know I, why are we giving them any money, and why aren't? Why is she still the president of Harvard? She was an embarrassment yesterday. Elise Stefanik. Put her on a grill and roasted her. I mean, just took her apart like a mob boss. She couldn't answer a question. No, I mean, because they don't know the answers to these questions. Again, they have been so steeped in this ideology, they can't figure it out. And the other thing about, unfortunately, about Congress acting is that you see all the time entities that do not need money at all from the public, such as PBS, which we could release uh, from the dole. And yet we do not because to the left, it's an institution that must be funded with taxpayer money, even though they have 50 billion to produce this and hardworking Americans are just like, can't buy bacon anymore because it's too expensive. Like Steve, Steve Inskeep and I, I love Steve Inskeep, but I always say NPR should be defunded yesterday. There's no reason for NPR to get a dime. I have to get my sponsorships lined up, right? NPR just gets the money. Who, who sponsors getting hammered by the way? Uh, right, right now, uh, we're just, you know, we kind of freelance it and we're, uh, we're, if advertisers would like to come along, please do. You mean you don't get a federal, you don't get a federal stipend? Oh no, I, I'm not in those bills. It turns out getting hammered is not a line item. Well, I think that we ought to toss out the universities and add getting hammered. 
All right, so that's my view of the world, is that getting hammered should be getting the NPR uh, dole instead of NPR. And you might add that, Speaker Johnson. Mary Catherine Ham, follow her on X at MK Hammer, and go get Getting Hammered with Vic Mattis, the Fetching Mrs. Hewitt's favorite podcast. Stay tuned, America. I'll be right back. I'm joined now by Tim Alberta, the author of this brand-new book, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory, which I'm holding up. Good morning, Tim. I have eight pages of notes in the back of my book. So actually, we need about 10 hours to do this. But uh, congratulations. Good to see you again. How is the book doing? Hugh, good morning. Uh, eight pages. You're slacking, my friend. You, you, I know. Uh, you, I, I would have set the over under at about 12 and a half. So uh, you've gone easy on me. Uh, the book's doing fine so far. Uh, I'm just, I'm, you know. I'm happy to just have a chance to talk to people about the Lord uh, in settings where they wouldn't normally be talking about the Lord, which is a pretty cool thing. You know, in 1996, I did a series for PBS called Searching for God in America and eight interviews, four of them with believers. And Chuck Colson got to give a testimony on PBS. So I just thought that was great. I want to applaud you for your testimony to Stephanie Rule on MSNBC. That might have been the first time a lot of that audience heard the gospel, Tim. Yeah. 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 I mean, look, uh, you know, I'm not being cute when I say it, Hugh. I think it's I think it's a wonderful thing, you know, uh, without getting ahead of ourselves here. So often the question will come back to me, you know, what is evangelical even mean? And it's a fair question. But at its root, right, we are talking about evangelizing. It it is taken from the Greek of good news or, or gospel evangelizing. That is the verb, right? We are to evangelize if we are followers of Jesus. And so the opportunity to evangelize in deeply secular settings, I think, is it's just it's a gift. And and I'm grateful for it. Now, Tim, I did not know until I read The Kingdom, The Power and The Glory. And I follow the lunch rule, by the way, which is if you don't say the title of a book seven times in every segment, The Kingdom, The Power and The Glory, the listeners will not remember The Kingdom, The Power and The Glory. So I'm just giving you my, my hat tip here, which is the kingdom, the power, and the glory ought to roll off your lips like uh, Tim Alberta, the kingdom, the power, and the glory. But I didn't know you were in seminary. Are you actually in seminary right now? Um, yeah, that is not something I really advertise, Hugh. Um, uh, yes, I am. Uh, um, and I don't want to say much about it because it's a, it's a, it's a special thing for me, um, uh, but but yes, I, I am. I and I am not doing divinity studies, to be clear. I'm not planning to transition careers, but I, I'm getting a master's in theological studies. OK, I saw that in the book. So it's in the book. That's why I said, oh, I, I wanted to ask if you were going into the pastorate. And you just answered my question. No. And so it's a good yeah. thing. No, that- I just I. Yeah, I just I, I make sort of a, 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 a glancing reference to it at the end of the book, just in terms of my father, because he had always teased me about going to seminary one day. And of course, I, uh, I, I, I waited until he was gone and with the Lord to decide to do just that. Um, so, yes. OK, we'll respect your discretion on that. I'm going to ask you to respect my rules, which is I never talk about colleagues at NBC, The Washington Post or Salem. Two of my colleagues are Charlie Kirk and Eric McTaxis. I often disagree with them on things. You disagree with them on a lot of things, and they're much in this book. But we're not going to talk about them because I never discuss my colleagues on air. Is that good enough ground rules for you, Tim? Sure. That's I okay. respect that. 
All right, let's start with batting practice. Would you put forward your premise on the kingdom, the power, and the glory, the conclusion to which you are reasoning in the course of your research and writing? Sure, Hugh. I think um, I would I would say that uh, the crisis in the American evangelical church today is an overrealized patriotism that one could perhaps argue bleeds into almost a militant nationalism, and that so many of the problems we encounter in the church today are downstream from from there. And and, and what I mean by that is that well. There is nothing wrong at all with a with a healthy love of country, with wanting to see uh, the society, the culture that we are in flourish and prosper, that Christians are ultimately called to have their citizenship in heaven. And when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, he uses those terms interchangeably in the Gospels, as you know, he talks about it not as an abstraction. He talks about it as a very real place, a physical place, a community of believers, almost a nation, the way that he describes it. And we are told again and again and again in the New Testament that in order to realize our citizenship in that nation, then we must die to our earthly selves and that everything in this world, this this fleeting place, uh, that it must be secondary and that it cannot be in competition with that kingdom. And my fear is that for many, far too many American evangelicals, and obviously there's a great deal of nuance here. I want to get into that with you because I do not paint in broad brushes in the book, as you know. I think for far too many folks, there has been um, this, this, this ideal of America and an ideal of a, a, a divine America, an America in covenant with God. And they have attempted to almost merge these two kingdoms into one. And, and I believe it is not only uh, profoundly uh, dangerous for the purposes of sustaining a pluralistic liberal democracy as a society, but I also think it just does a tremendous disservice to the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that is the, the essential argument that Tim makes, and I can, I can verify that. Again, I've been through this book very, very closely because I've been in conversation with Tim for more than a decade. He used to be a regular guest on this show. He used to be a regular guest on my MSNBC show. And I've interviewed evangelicals for years. N.T. Wright has spent three hours on this show. Dallas Willard, when he was alive, was on this show. Tim Keller was on this show. Chuck Colson, Al Mohler, you name it, they've been on this show Almost everybody except the nutters in this book has been on this show, including uh, Pastor Jeffress, who's not a nutter and is a very mainstream evangelical. But let's start with the definition, Tim, because I think you and I part company on definition, and I want to make sure I get it right. You define, I call myself an evangelical Roman Catholic Presbyterian, because I go to Mass on Saturday in the Presbyterian Church on Sunday, and I'm an ordained elder in the Presbyterian Church, and I am in communion with the Catholic Church and in good standing with the Catholic Church. Difficult to do theologically. I don't think about it very much, but it's true. Uh, now, your de- definition of evangelical is, if I get it correctly, not Catholics of any sort, liberal or conservative, just not Catholics, not LDS, not mainline Protestants. So that would get rid of the PCUSA and I think the PCA, but I'm not sure. Not the black church. Everybody that's left is an evangelical that, that claims to be evangelical. Is that right? But if you claim to be an evangelical Roman Catholic Protestant like me, you're not writing about me, correct? 
Well, not not necessarily, Hugh. So I, I talk about this early in the book that that there is some definitional overlap here. Uh, there are Roman Catholics such as yourself who will identify as evangelical. Now, now many will do it because of cultural and social connotations, political connotations. Others will do it, and I have actually some friends just like you who will attend both mass on Saturdays and services on Sundays. They they actually. Uh, uh, claim sort of dual citizenship b- between the two faith traditions. One river, two banks. Often, yeah, that's exactly right. And often because of marriage or, or family situations, right? Um, to, now, to the point about, uh, you know, black Protestants, um, I have encountered plenty of black Protestants who would consider themselves to be part of the evangelical tradition. At the same time, what I, what I uh, use as a bit of a disclaimer in the book is that you know, there's a lot of social science to show that for many non-white Protestants who are conservative and reformed in their theology, they will not self-identify as evangelical. Uh, some will, but the great majority of them would rather identify as born again. Um, th- th- in other words, evangelical, because of the cultural social connotations it has taken on over the decades, it has left a lot of non-white Protestants who would otherwise belong to that tribe sort of unwilling to adopt the label. So there there are some of those nuances there, but to the I think to the thrust of your question, the book yes is primarily examined at, uh, aimed at examining I should say the white conservative evangelical tradition if only Hugh because that is the world I know and it's the world that I emerged from. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how big is the tribe that is under the microscope of Tim Alberta in this book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, and whether or not it's big, little, minuscule, enormous. We'll talk about that. We're going to talk with Tim all hour long on this special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back with Tim Alberta. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt reminding you that Angel Tree is about their annual drive to bring Christmas presents to the children of prisoners of America. Prison Fellowship is the sponsor of Angel Tree, and they sponsor this campaign. I urge you to go to the banner at the top of HughHewitt.com and be as generous as you can, because these children deserve a Christmas, even if mom and or dad are behind bars, and Angel Tree makes that happen. I'm back with Tim Alberta, the author of this brand new book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory. It's fine read, very well written. Uh, The subtitle is American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. Might be a little bit misleading, Tim, because you're not really talking about all American evangelicals. You're talking about some. And I'd like to get a handle on the number that you think are overly politicized, because that's the key. I've asked nine people in the course of a week, ranging from a former governor. They're all men. I've been in conversation with them about the size of the if I asked you how many American evangelical congregations, which are predominantly white and are verging on Christian nationalism or too much political activism, what percentage? And I got one person saying 70% of those congregations are too political. I got two people saying 1%. I got five people total saying 10% or less, and the rest were at 25 or less. And so there's quite a lot of diversity in view on how widespread is the data set that we are talking about here. How large, with, with 300 to 350,000 churches in America, how many of them do you think are dancing on the borderline of Christian nationalism, if not fully into that forest of Christian nationalism? 
Wow. You know, Hugh, it's a tough question to answer, and I will and I will take my best whack at answering it. Um, I, I want to preface my my best whack at it by saying that you know, early on in the book, I think on like the second page of the book, I, I try to make very clear that we are talking about a huge and diverse population here, folks who run a vast spectrum in terms of their political attitudes, political behaviors, their their bearing towards Donald Trump specifically and towards partisan politics. I mean, you know, this is not a monolith. There, there is not a broad brush we can use here. I think from all my reporting, and as you know, from having read the book, uh, I've spent a few years you know, really immersing myself in this world, in all of its different factions and subcultures, trying to, among other things, get a handle on exactly the question you're asking. Just how prevalent is this? Uh, how do we try to quantify the problem, as I, as I describe it earlier, the, the, the problem of Christian nationalism, the problem of uh, radicalism uh, infiltrating the church? I guess at a at a, at an individual level, the conclusion I've reached in talking with a whole host of pastors who have been dealing with this themselves, they will tell you that pretty uh, pretty regularly they're dealing with maybe somewhere between ten to fifteen percent in their congregations uh, with whom they have a real problem here. Uh, sometimes maybe as high as 20 or even 25 percent, but 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 a decided minority in their congregations who are uh, really sort of agitating and uh, some truculent w- with their approach to other people in the pews, with their approach to the church leadership. And that has led to a lot of the fracturing inside these individual churches that I describe. As far as what percentage of churches are dealing with this friction, with this tension, I mean, from my reporting experiences, I think that number is probably close to 100. Now, it's, it, that's not to say that 100% of these churches are falling apart or are somehow on the verge of, of, of uh, being taken over by, you know, Christian nationalist militants. That, that's not what I'm saying at all. But I, I have yet to discover, I have yet to come across a single church, including churches, Hugh, that were planted specifically... Uh, for the purposes of uh, sort of purging political extremism from their midst. In other words, uh, conservative, reformed uh, Christians who came from church settings that had been sort of toxic and overly politicized, and they left and came together to form new congregations. I've visited churches like that, and even in those newer churches, there is still some of that threat on the periphery. So when I say that it feels like it's close to 100, it's because I think by virtue of this age we're living in, this age of extremism that I write about, which, by the way, I'm not just talking about extremism, you know, infiltrating the church. I'm talking about extremism infiltrating the entire culture, extremism permeating American life at this point. It's very hard to keep it out, even if you're being very intentional about keeping it out. But I do think back to my earlier point that inside these individual congregations that have fallen into something of a civil war, I will continually hear from the pastors who have all of the scars to show for the fighting that they still don't think it's any more than about 15 or 20 percent of their congregants who have fallen to this. We're going to pursue this more on the other side. It's my experience that many churches 
I mean, almost every church has a nutter or two, an extremist, of left or right. And I'm in mainstream denominations on both coasts where I've been blessed by pastors who do not talk politics, so it doesn't surface very much. They're, they're great pastors who will take a point of view, but it never really surfaces. But I want to drill down on the numbers, Tim, and add some examples after the break, because I think it's not a problem. I just refuse to believe it. I don't refuse to believe it. I have not seen comprehensive evidence that Christian nationalism is a problem in the culture. And I'll talk about that with Tim Alberta. He talks about it in his brand new book, The Kingdom, Power, and the Glory, right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. If you are worried about Christian nationalism, this is the book for you. The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals, American Evangelical, Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism by Tim Alberta, works for the Atlantic now, and The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, available for sale everywhere. It's very well written. It's very well researched. I don't agree with the conclusions, but and I don't agree with some of the portraits, but it's a very good book for those who are worried about American Christian nationalism. Tim, I wish I'd heard your father preach. I think I would have enjoyed it. I'm a connoisseur of great preaching. I've been blessed by people like Mark Roberts and Larry Hayward and a bunch of great preachers in my life. Uh, did he record any of his sermons? Did he have the, the you know, Tim Keller recorded all of his sermons, but they're a complete mess online. And so I just pick one, but they're not organized by gospel or epistle. Yeah, you know, Hugh, uh, I'm really blessed in a lot of ways um, because... My dad did record all of his sermons. Uh, a lot of them, the older ones from when I was younger, are on cassette tapes, of course. Um, but they've been transferred over to CDs, and now we have a house full of CDs, and we're working on getting those digitized. But uh, I'm able to cruise around in – I've got an older F-150 that has a CD player, so I'm, I'm blessed because I'm able to pop in his sermons. But actually, if you're on YouTube, you can go find some of his sermons on YouTube. The last sermon he ever preached – I was giving him a hard time towards the end of his career because I said, hey, old man, you're, you're recycling too much material here. Like, and after he had retired and passed the reins at his church to his successor, who's a, a lovely guy who I think the world of, um, my dad came back a year later when he was officially named Pastor Emeritus of the church, and he delivered his final sermon. This was in June of 2019, and it was titled, Four Things God Knows About You. And... That sermon you can find on YouTube, and he died a month later. That was actually the last sermon he gave. But I got the chance to tell him I was not there physically for it, but I listened online when he gave it. And I got the chance to tell him. I said, hey, Pop, I think that might have been one of the best sermons I ever heard you preach. So if, if you're interested, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, by the way, I, I salute your rebuke of the people who use the occasion of your father's wake or memorial service to argue with you about your politics. I, I, it's actually a cringe-inducing moment for me. I can't believe that anyone would come through when I was uh, receiving people for my dad's funeral and tell me that I was too concerned. I just can't believe it, that people did that. And I hope they read it, and I hope they come to you and apologize. Has anyone done that yet? No, sir. And I'm not, uh, I, don't want, I, I don't want to sound cute, but I, I'm not holding my breath, Hugh, uh, for, for, for some of the reasons. In, in fact, I will just tell you that even in the last few weeks, uh, as we've prepared to to roll the book out, um, I've gotten some similar missives from some of the same folks uh, in my home church, and um, it, it's still a very raw thing. Well, I, I 
I apologize on their behalf. I think that's the least Christ-like behavior I've ever heard of. And I think it powers the book to a certain extent and certainly gives it a liftoff. Let's get back to the substance of it, not Tim Alberta. When Secretary Clinton was on this show talking about the book back here, What Happened?, I asked her bluntly, how big is the white supremacist problem? Is it 10,000? Is it 100,000? Is it 5 million? She used the number 600,000 white supremacists in America out of 330 million people. I think that's right. I think that was, you know, we roughly agree. How many Christian nationalists do you think there are in the United States, Tim Alberta? Wow. The, the, that's a, that's another one where quantifying it, Hugh, is so difficult. I mean, first of all, I think we have to agree on something of a definition, right? Because a Christian nationalist to one person, including some of my uh, more progressive colleagues and friends in media, might mean something entirely different than it means to you or that it means to me. Um, can, can we agree on I, David Barton reconstructionists? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. David Barton reconstructionist. We can operate off of that. So I think, boy, how to quantify like raw numbers. I, I guess I would be more comfortable dealing in percentages. Is that okay to you? Sure. Is that, is I that mean, a, I, I actually, I just want to make sure people think, I want to know if I'm on the same playing field with you as I was with secretary Clinton. Yeah, sure. So I, I would think that it's roughly similar not that it's not that they're entirely overlapping, but I would think that it's roughly similar, although probably a little bit higher than that same 15 to 20 percent of the sort of political zealots that are inside of the church. I do think that it's a little bit higher. So maybe we're talking about, let's say, a third. Maybe it's even a little bit higher than that, Hugh. I, I don't know. I, the, the reason I would say it's a little bit higher is because I do believe that you have Lots of lots of conservative white evangelicals who have their political priorities in order, who are not given over to a sort of, you know, militant approach to politics, uh, a militant approach to the culture. People like my father, quite frankly, who uh, who believed deeply that there that 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 the United States was. Uh, a, a a divinely blessed nation. Now he did not believe that it was a nation in covenant with God. He did not believe that uh, that that fighting for America was fighting for God and vice versa. Um, but he certainly believed that there was something uh, unique about this nation, and that its uniqueness owed to uh, its connection to its Judeo Christian heritage. And yet he was. I would have never considered my dad to be a Christian nationalist. So there's. There's so much gray area here. It's it, it's difficult, I think, definitionally to assign that label, which has become so provocative uh, and so demeaning in many ways to people who love their country, who have a, a very healthy sense of, of patriotism and duty to country, but who are not necessarily given over to, again, to, 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 to use and overuse this phrase, a militant posture toward sort of merging God and country together. Does that make sense? Well, I think we agree on that. I think theocrats are few and far between. And Reconstructionists, for those Steelers fans who are listening, are people who think that the Bible ought to run the United States of America and that the First Amendment separation of church and state, as understood by the court and developed over centuries, is inappropriately done. They're wrong. And as a matter of constitutional law, they're wrong. I just think they're minuscule, Tim. Uh, and I think anecdotal evidence is evidence of anecdotes. That's an old law school saying. 
comes up in almost every law school faculty meeting. Anecdotal evidence is evidence of anecdotes. If you come in and tell me this student, this student, this student did A, B, and C, that means we have three examples. Let's go find out how big the problem is. I don't think Christian nationalism is a big problem. Uh, I think you can find some pretty crazy congregations. In fact, your guy, Bill Bolin, I, I, I mean, wow. Uh, I, I Because I read about him in your book, I went and listened to his sermon. The first sermon I pulled was an anti-Catholic Jeremiah that, just, I mean, everything was wrong to begin with, but he was just way out there. How many people go to that church? Well, and Hugh, th- so this is where I might respectfully disagree with what you said a moment ago, because if we want to try to quantify this, if we want to try and get our arms around the scope of the problem, look at a... Yeah, you froze. We come back with Tim Alberta on the kingdom, the power and the glory. Welcome back, America. Tim Alberta's connection is reestablished. His brand new book is The Kingdom, the Power and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. Tim, I just noted on Twitter, now known as X, that you had put up a note about you're agreeing not to talk about Charlie Kirk and Eric McTaxis. I put up a clarification. I pointed out on air to you that I don't talk about any colleagues from the Post, NBC, or Salem, and that would be particularly applicable to Charlie and Eric because they're in your book a lot. I just want to make sure everyone got the full disclosure there. I thought maybe your note on Twitter made it sound like offstage I'd put a gag order on you, and I, I didn't do that. I just said, oh, my oh. No, no. Well, I certainly didn't mean to imply that. Uh, All right, good. No, let's get back well, to and, substance. And, and for anyone listening, you had made that clear earlier, but but I didn't yeah. discuss any of your NBC colleagues in the book, obviously. So I don't think so. I don't recall any. No. Um, you mentioned John Ward, who might be an NBC colleague. I can't remember. I read John's book, by the way, and I have basically the same critique, which we'll talk about after the break. But I want to get back to the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Uh, I am confused. I've seen you on air say that it is not in the Bible that we ought to be concerned with the Great Commission, that Trump delivered the Supreme Court, and you said, where is that in the Bible? Do I recall that correctly? I don't recall that, no. Um, I'm trying to think. Now, you'll have to forgive me, because I have done a lot of media in the last two weeks. Yeah, I figured. Um, well, one uh, of your appearances, someone excerpted where in the Where in the Bible? Oh, 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 I think you might be referring to an exchange I had with Bob Costa, where yes, he yes. said... Um, where, where he said evangelicals would tell you that Trump wins for them. And I said, well, wins what? And he said, Supreme Court seats, a seat at the table, political victories. And I said, show me where in Scripture those things matter. Okay, and I will I will come back to the Scripture, but I also found, I'm, I mean, I read your book very closely, Tim. Page 327, Trump could be excused for feeling perplexed. He did go to war with Democrats. He had delivered evangelicals the policy wins they always wanted. He was promising to do it all over again. So why weren't they embracing his second run for the presidency? So that's kind of an admission against interest that he didn't win for evangelicals. He did. And the place where it is in the Bible is the Great Commission. I think and now my point of view is the Great Commission is obligatory. You and I are called upon to preach the gospel. America is the place you are best able to do that because of the free exercise clause. And the Supreme Court under Trump, the three justices he added, provided Trinity Lutheran, Philadelphia Diocese, Carson B. Macon, 303 Creative. I teach these cases. 
It was a sea change at the Supreme Court that Donald Trump delivered on behalf of the first on the, uh, of the Great Commission, Tim. Why isn't that enough for you to be persuaded evangelicals should support him? Because, Hugh, if you go back to Constantine, what you see consistently throughout history is that there is an inverse relationship between the amount of social, cultural, and political power held by Christians in a given society and the health of Christianity and the reputation and the credibility of Christianity in that same culture. If you were to go to the underground church in China and speak with missionaries there, and and I have not been there physically, but I've I've interfaced with a lot of these folks, um, they would tell you that Christianity is thriving in China and in other cultures where Christianity is brutally repressed and oppressed because it is countercultural, because it does not carry the backing of the state. When you describe those Supreme Court cases, when you describe these political victories, Hugh, if, if, if this were a part of the Great Commission, then why is church attendance plummeting in America? Why is the unbeliever's perception of organized religion in America at an all-time low? The, 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 the credibility of the witness matters tremendously. We are told that throughout the New Testament in the book of Titus. I don't, I'm not going to go chapter and verse on you, uh, literally. But my you can. I'm a Catholic. I won't recognize can... it. <laughs> yeah, right. You fair enough. You can make the case that you would you're, because you're an evangelical Catholic. All right. You can make the case that you're making, Hugh, and I respect it. I appreciate it. But I just fundamentally disagree with it. At the end of the day, if you believe that God's plan for the ages and and the ability of believers to act on the Great Commission and to take the gospel to all the nations and to baptize unbelievers in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, if you believe that that is dependent upon Supreme Court nominations and upon presidential elections, then I believe your theology is very, very small. Well, Tim, I obviously don't believe that. I don't believe that. I believe that the Great Commission is most easily served in any country where religious liberty thrives, that there is no excuse for anyone in the United States to be ashamed of the gospel because they're not going to get shot by the secret police and they're not going to get but shut the, but, down. But Hugh, but, but Hugh, then why do we see Christianity exploding in Africa, in Iran, it, throughout the Middle East, in Asia, in, in countries that have almost no religious freedom whatsoever? I'll come we back after the break and I'll absolutely thriving. I'll explain that. It's a lot of it has to do with the fact that the United States has helped fund the church. In fact, my churches have helped fund churches in Africa and China and other places. The American exceptionalism has allowed the gospel to spread more rapidly and more efficiently than it ever has before. But with that come very great temptations, and they're all detailed in this book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory. We're talking about finding the right course, and Tim and I are going to continue to talk. It'll all be on the podcast. Go and listen to the rest of it. Thank you, America. Stay strong, Israel. Pray for the kidnapped people and for peace of Jerusalem. I'll be right back, America. Stay tuned. I'm back now with Tim Alberta. Tim, we were just getting in the conversation about the Great Commission. I think the First Amendment matters a lot. I don't think we're a divinely ordained country. I don't believe God is probably—I'm with Lincoln. I hope God's on my side, but we must have Kentucky. I hope God's on my side, but we must absolutely have freedom in the United States. And I believe the Republican Party is better at that. That's why I'm a Republican. And if Trump is nominated again, I'll vote for him because it's not one person. It's 3,000 people. And it's not motivated by Christian nationalism. It's just basically politics. 
But I, I really don't see the problem that you do. And here's my proposition. I've saved my critique for off the air. I think you drew a treasure chest and then you found the map there. You knew what your conclusion was. So you went and you interviewed David French, Russell Moore, Dan Darling, and you went and you found a bunch of very odd people. And the one bridge in between is Ralph Reed and Russell uh, and um, Pastor Jeffress. But that generally you got where you wanted to go because you selected the evidence you wanted to use. What do you make of my critique? Well, I think it's nonsense, respectfully. Uh, Hugh, I visited hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches across the country. Uh, I I spend the opening chapters uh, dealing with the pastors uh, in the home churches where I grew up, one where I was born in the Hudson Valley and the other in southeast Michigan, uh, where my dad was the pastor and where I grew up. Both of these pastors are telling you, telling the reader in raw, unsparing detail about the, the, the tremendous fracturing inside of their congregations due to these very things that you seem to be downplaying or, or, or at least treating as though they are a problem only at the margins. Hugh, I would just tell you that uh, if you respect me as a reporter, I, I have done all the reporting. I've spent years having these conversations with people, many of whom, the, actually the overwhelming majority of whom, are right of center on the political ideological spectrum who would agree with you on almost every cultural and political issue. And yet what they have witnessed firsthand in their own faith communities is something uh, incredibly discouraging, at times incredibly scary. I mean, in pastor in chapter two, I described the pastor dealing with threats from from a a small cabal in his congregation one person was photoshopping pictures of the church in flames going up in flames using really incendiary racial rhetoric i mean we i i I think when my bandwidth cut out earlier in this weird hotel wi-fi situation (laughs) you were asking about this church in my hometown with with bill bolin this pastor and you you had prefaced that that anecdote by talking about how you don't know that this is really a widespread thing and how do we quantify it? Bill Bolin is now preaching to thousands of people every Sunday. And when I've shared that story of Floodgate Church, I have received emails from pastors. Hugh, I'll forward them to you. Emails from pastors all over the country, conservative Republican pastors who have said, yeah, Bill Bolin's in my hometown. I've got the exact same thing happening here. We've got blood and soil revivals happening down the street from me, and people from my congregation, elders from my congregation, have left and gone there. So just respectfully, the idea that uh, I set out with, uh, with a conclusion already in mind and then found the characters, I think if anything, I bent over backward to try and explore the full spectrum of characters here who are dealing with this in different ways and experiencing it through their own perspectives. And the only conclusion I can reach firmly is that, yes, this is a serious problem. I don't know quite the scale or the the sweep of it to quantify it, as you're asking me to do, but I certainly do think it's a problem. Did you request an interview with Al Mohler? I tried to reach Al Mohler. Yeah, I couldn't get to him. Via email or via phone? Because Al would be the perfect person for you to talk to. Uh, about the scale of the problem. I haven't asked him, but I talked to him often. And I had talked to him for 20 years. Great Baptist man. We don't, I, I've had scars with him in his massive library at, at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. 
And I thought that was glaring. Did you reach out to Rick Warren? I did. Yeah. Didn't Rick, get a chance. Rick, uh, Rick declined because he's because he was retiring and he. Did you get a chance to talk to Greg Laurie of Harvest Crusade? I don't think I reached out to Greg. Uh, I would have to go back and look. I cast an awfully wide net here. I'm not sure I spoke with Greg or I'm not sure that I reached out to Greg. I know I didn't speak with him. How about Barry Corey, president of Biola University? No, uh, I did spend a lot of time with Ed Stetzer, who's now at Biola. But not, I see, I, I realize that you have a pretty comprehensive group. Well, I would you, guess I it, there are about 50 people that you interview, and they're great. I mean, David French is very smart. Uh, I've known David for a long time. He's a superb litigator. Uh, I don't know Russell Moore. I don't know Dan Darling. They're professionals. They got on the wrong side of their employment. I don't think it represents mainstream white Protestant evangelicalism to the extent you think it does. And my test is this. I have a bell curve, Tim. Let me explain you my theory. There's a bell curve in everything. And in white evangelical Protestantism, there's a bell curve. And I think all your evidence comes from the right edge of the bell curve. None, And the critics of it come from the left edge of the bell curve. And the vast between the 20s of the bell curve is not in your book. In fact, I don't even find the 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 moderate edge of the bell curve in your book. So if you focus on that edge of the bell curve, you're going to get the kingdom, the power, and the glory like John Ward did. But I, I think if you and I, here's my you, test. Go ahead. No, uh, Hugh, I, I think you're reading what you want to read here, respectfully. Chapters 1, 2, 4, and 6 just off the top of my head, are entirely dominated by people squarely in the middle of that bell curve. The pastor of Cornerstone Evangelical Presbyterian Church, squarely in the middle of that bell curve. The pastor of Goodwill Evangelical Presbyterian Church in the Hudson Valley, squarely in the middle of that bell curve. Russell Moore, you, you, uh, his criticism... No, but he's not, not in the middle of this bell curve. Christianity Today has 70,000 okay. subscribers. I know Tim Dalrymple pretty well. I don't know Russell. They have been bleeding subscribers because they no longer represent the middle of that bell curve. But but you can say that about Christianity today. But individually, if you assess Russell Moore's theology, his cultural stances on everything from abortion to same-sex marriage to religious freedom, you would not place him anywhere to the left of the bell curve. It just doesn't oh, I disagree. Even, it doesn't it, it, add up. Tim, we're talking about politically active Christians, not what Christians believe politically. Among politically active Christians, you selected the never Trumpers. And so you got a never Trump view Hugh, of the church. Hugh, chapter six, I spend at Wheaton College. Wheaton College is, is, is the definition of the middle of that bell curve, filled with talking with professors there and with students there, many of whom were still Trump supporters. I, I spend uh, one of the chapters in the middle of the book at a Doug Mastriano rally, having a very sensitive searching conversation with a pastor there who is a Trump voter who has become somewhat disillusioned with Trump, but who is still so conservative that fundamentally conservative that he was willing to pray at a Doug Mastriano rally. I, I, I just I reject entirely your description of my reporting here. It doesn't pass the smell test for anybody. who's I, 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 I reject your rejection. Here's the test. If we go to any, if Tim Alberta and Hugh Hewitt go to any town in America and we open up what used to be the yellow pages to churches and we don't go to a Catholic church and we don't go to an AME church, we just pick a church. Is that church likely to be politicized, Tim? Sure. 
I don't think so. Absolutely. I, well, Hugh, respectfully, have you done the reporting on it, though? Yeah, I go to churches how, how every day. You don't I've think been, so. Tim, You're saying you don't think so as a matter of opinion, Hugh. I'm no, saying Tim, yes as a I matter have to, of having I have to throw work. down a credentialism card. I have been reporting on the church in America since 1991. My first documentary was made on the Harvest Crusade. I did an eight-part series for PBS in 1996 called Searching for God in America. I've written three books on evangelicalism in America, and I do reporting on it frequently. I've been doing this for longer than you've been in the business, Tim. You're just you, have you done Have you done any of that in the last six or seven years? Continually. That's why I have had on John Ward. That's why I've had on everyone like you who writes this book, and I make the same critique. Uh, it's but not you, fair to you the church. specifically, Hugh, done that reporting yourself in the last six or seven years? Not just talk to people on your show, but done the reporting. That, that's actually what you do. If you talk to someone one-on-one, -on -one, and I talk to them on my show before and after like I'm doing to you right now, that's reporting, but it's reporting that the audience gets to judge whether it is done in the round and fairly. They get to judge everything. They get to hear everything, Tim. I don't know what you left on the editing floor. I do find it odd that none of the mainstream people that I would have used to check my numbers, to check my math, are in the book. And I wonder if you went in harm's way. Now, you did go to Robert Jeffress. You haven't put up the Connor example. The best example you have is your long conversation with Robert Jeffress. Very long conversation. I don't think he said anything particularly alarming or exceptional there. I know he's close to Donald Trump, but he's just a pastor of a big Baptist church. He's not an extremist, is he? I think it, de it depends on what your definition of an extremist is, uh, Hugh. It really does. I'm not playing the Bill Clinton game with you. I, I think there are many folks within his own denomination, within the Southern Baptist Convention, who do view Robert Jeffress as an extremist. I personally, having spent a lot of time talking with Pastor Jeffress, I, I like the man. And I think that uh, in many ways, theologically, uh, he lands where I would land. And, and I take no issue with much of what I hear uh, from the pulpit. I think when he attacks Mitt Romney for years as a as a Mormon cultist and 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 all of these other things, then that would qualify someone in my book as a bit of an extremist. Sure. Politically. Yes. I, I was. A, I don't think he's an extremist. I do know he did not like Mitt Romney, doesn't like the LDS. In fact, on my notes, I was going to bring this up. You left it as an open question whether or not American evangelicals cost Mitt Romney the presidency in 2012. I think they did. I also, by the way, did a lot of reporting in 2012 on actually it was 2007 and 2008 on Mitt Romney and evangelicals for the book of Mormon in the White House, because I was afraid that the American evangelical movement would keep Mitt Romney out of the White House. And I think it did. I think it was very subterranean. I think it did because they were so concerned about the LDS and they're not concerned about Donald Trump because the LDS actually believe a doctrine which is not Trinitarian and Donald Trump is neither Trinitarian nor non-Trinitarian. He's not particularly churched, as far as I can tell. Uh, but I don't think, I think you alighted that point, and you, you, you didn't really want to deal with the LDS. Tim, I like the book, but I hope you hear me. I don't think it was fair to a lot of people, and I don't think it was Christian to a lot of people. Do you understand what I'm saying? How so? I think so? you were very, very harsh to a lot of people who would say their portraitures are not presented in the round, one of them being Pastor Jeffress. Um, I, I thought the whole bit about the corner in his office full of cufflinks and book, 
The man does a lot for the gospel. He does a lot for evangelicalism in America. I disagree with him on some stuff politically, but I don't think it was fair to him, and I don't think it advanced the gospel. Hugh, here's the thing. Let me make two points. First, we are taught at the end of the day that fundamentally our citizenship is in heaven. Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven as a treasure buried in a field. And he says in his parable that the man finds the treasure buried in that field. He puts it back in the earth. He runs off. He sells everything else that he has, everything, all of his possessions, in order that he may take the proceeds and go and buy that field. Because it's now the only thing that matters. The only thing. So you can choose to read that in a selective way, in a relative way, or you can choose to read it and interpret it quite literally, which is to say that all other allegiances, all other interests must be subjugated to that kingdom. In the case of Robert Jeffress, as he himself admitted to me at one point in our conversation, he questioned at one point, he allowed himself on the record to question at one point whether his unflinching vocal advocacy for Donald Trump did harm his gospel witness, Hugh. And it's my conclusion objectively that it did. And it's also my conclusion objectively that when Ralph Reed has people at his conference selling shirts that say F Joe Biden on them, that that damages the gospel witness, that when Greg Locke and when some of these other characters, colleagues of yours whose names I shall not mention on the show, when they go about with their antics, that it diminishes the gospel of Jesus Christ and that it takes away from the splendor of that kingdom to which we are called to ultimately serve, Hugh. The most Christian thing that I can do is practice the New Testament model, not the American Christian model, which completely inverts the New Testament model. The New Testament model very plainly preaches grace and forgiveness and understanding for those outside the church because they don't know God. They don't know any better. We are to love them unconditionally and show them grace. But inside the church, those who distort the kingdom of God, those who pursue their own earthly ambitions ahead of the kingdom of God, we are to treat them with strict accountability, Hugh. And that's what I've tried to do here with all humility. We in America have flipped that entirely on its head. We are willing to rally around people like your colleagues at Salem Radio who have distorted the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are hostile and antagonistic toward those outside the church and the culture who don't know Jesus, who we are supposed to be evangelizing in that great commission. We've got it completely backward. And I'm sorry, but I will make no apology for trying to hold to account those who have taken the most beautiful gift this world has ever received, that gospel of Jesus Christ, and wielded it as a weapon to win some election or to win some culture war. It's grotesque. I'm sorry. It is. Uh, Tim, you don't have to apologize to me. I wonder if you think that soliloquy kept to the intent of the um, ground rules we established at the beginning of this conversation. Did you honor with grace well, I didn't and integrity our agreement not to discuss my colleagues? I, I, you know, you're right. I didn't. I apologize. I, I did not name them by name, but I, I suppose saying your colleagues is bad enough. So I apologize for that. You're right. Yeah, given that I named I them by name I at can't. the beginning. You, 
given that I did, but I accept your Again. apology. Tim, I, I really think you've done a fine job on reporting on Christian nationalism. I think you've done a terrible job at suggesting it's a big problem. And I believe you and I can go together and find Christian nationalists everywhere. There's going to be one church in every town. But then I'm going to take you, for example, randomly to my daughter's congregation. She's a Navy spouse, so she lives all over the place. I always go to her congregation. I have never heard one time any politics, and she's a Protestant. I, you know, my children were raised Protestant. Never heard one time any politics. I could send you to Archbishop Chaput's book, Render Unto Caesar, and you would find the Catholic evangelical argument on behalf of the halt, the blind, the lame, and the immigrant, the stranger, and you would say, well, that sounds pretty liberal, but Archbishop Chaput is a conservative. I can take, there's counter evidence for all this. As a lawyer, I'm just saying if I deposed you, and you, had to, you haven't got enough evidence to convict the American church of anything. You've got anecdotes. And I'll, I'll close with this, Tim. There's Pew Research Center data on Christian nationalism. I think it's summarized, a fair summary is 10% of American white evangelicals have this problem about which you are worried, Christian nationalism. And it's a problem in the church. But that to overstate it harms the reputation of the church and the ability of the church to reach people. And that we've got to be careful in doing that so you and I as Christians do not interfere or cast aspersions greatly upon the church and the work that it does. I want to give the final word to you. Hugh, what you just said there, in my view, is fundamentally the problem. You believe that uh, airing the church's dirty laundry is what harms our ability to share the gospel with the outside world. I believe that what harms our ability to share the gospel with the outside world is the outside world's perception that the church is in hock to Donald Trump and that, that the litmus test, the true standard the, for, for entering an evangelical church is, are you a conservative MAGA Republican? And you can say that it's anecdotal, Hugh, but you should see the editing room floor and you should be a part of these conversations I've had with hundreds of pastors around the country, many of them who think and vote exactly like you do, who will tell me that they cannot reach uh, unbelievers in their community anymore because of the perception of what their church is and, and, and what purpose it truly serves. And, and hint, hint, that purpose is not to share the gospel. It is to win elections. It is to win the culture wars. It is to dominate this country. And I just, I, I can't emphasize this enough, Hugh. We are not called to win the culture wars. We are not called to win elections. All of that stuff is supposed to be secondary. If there is anything at all interfering with our ability to evangelize the unbeliever and to share that message of Jesus Christ, then we must do away with it. It is not a part of our call to be salt and light. And my great concern is that anyone listening to this would, would think that somehow I am trying to tear down the church. I am, I am trying to do anything but, Hugh. I believe that the answer to so much of the brokenness that we see in our society and in our world, can only be found, the answers to it can only be found in the church. This is a call to the unbelieving world who, if you, you cited some Pew Research, if you look at Pew Research and other social science dating back decades, 
The secular perception of organized Christianity in this country used to be incredibly positive, Hugh. People who didn't go to church used to think incredibly highly of the church, and now they hate the church. They hate us. They specifically hate evangelical Christians. PRRI just did great research on this in the last 18 months. What does that do to the gospel witness, and can we change it? That's why I wrote the book, not to shame any of these individuals, but to try to introduce some degree of accountability to an institution that has lost its way. That book is, and I will honor my commitment, that's the last word, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory by Tim Alberta. It will be a fine read. I recommend if you argue with me or you argue with Tim. If you agree with me or if you agree with Tim or if you're somewhere in between, go get the book and decide for yourself. It's a very well-written book. Tim Alberta, great to have you back. Thank you for joining me, friend. Press on. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.